you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Ruth chapter 2 as we continue in our series in the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 2. And and church, will you join me in thanking Elizabeth and Olivia and our Collide Choir for leading us? I know that uh, last night we had many of our uh, children, students that got a lot of candy, and so we're sugared up. We got an extra hour of sleep here. I uh, have a fatherly sort of of obligation. I always tell my kids I want to make sure there's no candy that is poisonous, which means there's a a significant portion of your candy that I must eat just, just to sacrificially love you and care for you. And so we're trying to figure out how we can institutionalize that here at the church. So on Sunday mornings after Halloween, there is a significant portion of candy that is the pastor's portion of candy that is brought here. So uh, no, uh, we're sugared up. We've got plenty of sleep. I'm going to preach for 59 minutes this morning and we're all good. We're all ready to go right here. Here, I'm going to ask you a question. It's a rhetorical question, but I want you to think carefully about your answer to this question. How much of your life is pure coincidence? Now, just to make sure we're on the same page here, I, I want us to give uh, just a, an understanding of what I mean by coincidence here. So extensive research this week, which manifested itself in 15-second Google search here. According to Google, uh, coincidence is a remarkable occurrence of events or circumstances without apparent causal connection. How much of your life is a remarkable occurrence of events and circumstances without apparent causal connection. Another way to ask that question is, is the destination of your life solely a series of disconnected, random, purposeless events, strung one after another, uh, with, with no rhyme, no reason, no purpose, no connection? Are your decisions good, bad, ugly, mundane, indifferent? Uh, Can they be a part of God's larger story that he is writing in your life and at a cosmic scale according to his good and or our good and his glory? Uh, Ruth is an easy book to miss. If you're walking through the Old Testament here, it's nestled away. It's just four chapters in between Judges and 1 Samuel. It's easy to skip over it. Last week, the curtains opened to Ruth, Act 1, Chapter 1. We meet the patriarch and the matriarch, Naomi and Elimelech. There is in Bethlehem, Bethlehem actually means the house of bread. There is a famine in the house of bread. And so they leave Bethlehem to go sojourn in Moab, the arch rival of the Israelites. There's enmity between Moab. It's enmity between the Moabites and the Israelites here. But Elimelech and Naomi, they go and they bring their two sons. The patriarch of the family, Elimelech, he dies. The two sons of the family, they marry two Moabite women. One is named Orpha, one is named Ruth. They die. Keeping tally, Naomi, the matriarch of this family, has buried a husband, 
And, and before we can, at least in the, the narrative of Ruth chapter 1, before we can scatter the bird cedars or leave in the, the, the sanctuary after their wedding, we're, we're, we've got two funerals already. That was 10 years in the context, but it's just a few verses there. So we have Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. And Naomi comes to them, says, Orpha, Ruth, I have nothing for you. Leave. Go home. Get out of here. Orpha eventually relents. She goes back home. Ruth looks at her mother-in-law and says, your people will be my people. Your land will be my land. Your God will be my God. The curtains are closing. Ruth, act one. They're headed back to Bethlehem. It's been 10 years since they've seen Naomi, and she greets those that she hasn't seen with the words, call me Mara. It means bitterness. Last time you saw me, I left here and I was full. I have come back empty. I have nothing. There's Ruth by her side. Curtains close. Ruth, act two. The curtains open. Spotlight shines and we see Naomi in the midst of her bitterness and frustration and grief. We see Ruth by her side and there is another spotlight that shines on a new character to the story. We're going to know him as Boaz. Ruth chapter 2 verses 1 through 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she, Naomi, said to her, Ruth, go, my daughter. To understand the story, you've got to understand the gleaning practice. So in the wheat harvesting season, in that ancient Near Eastern world, you would have the stalks that were cut. The corners of the field would not be harvested. They would not be reaped. Why? Because of the gleaning practice. This wasn't a social custom. This was instituted by God in his law. So look at Leviticus 19. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 24. It was God's way of caring for the poor, the widow, and the immigrant. The poor, the widow, and the immigrant are going to be cared for because this is God's heart. God's heart is for the poor. God's heart is for the immigrant. God's heart is for the widow. Anyone who is outcast, anyone who is down and out, broken, feels as if there's no hope before them, God has instituted a way that they not be left destitute. Verse 3 of Ruth chapter 2. So Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she, hey, if you are underlining in your Bible, if you put a star into the side of your Bible right there, this is a place to stop and pause. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. You remember Elimelech? The patriarch of the family who has died, Naomi's husband, this man was of the clan of Elimelech. The, the narrator of Ruth wants us to pause, wants us to snicker, wants us to see the irony in this reference. She happened to come. She happened to come to the field of Boaz, and Boaz happened to be of the clan of Elimelech. It's pure chance, right? Completely accidental, right? 
Purely coincidental, right? Spotlights upon Boaz. The first words that we hear of Boaz are God-centered words, other-centered words. Verse 4, and behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, he said to the people working in his field, the Lord be with you. The workers responded back, the Lord bless you. The first words that we hear from Boaz in the context of his work is words of blessing to the very workers in his field. Let's pause the story. Can I do that for a second? Pause the story. Let's let's pull back for a second. Let's, Let's get a little aside here. It's not the main point of the story, but I want you to see how Boaz is seasoning the climate of his workplace by being a God-centered person, and he is making a difference. Boaz is a worthy person to imitate because Monday through Friday, we have the opportunity to see that God has not placed us in our quote-unquote field of work accidentally, but he has placed us with people that he calls us to be salt and light too. And the way you treat people, your attitude, your actions, your words, they are the, the very raw material that God uses to draw people to him through your integrity, through your work ethic. He doesn't just waste what you're doing. That is his purpose for you. You're not in your field by chance. You don't work with your coworkers by chance. Don't underestimate the power of your faithful presence. Don't underestimate the power of your integrity, your work ethic, your prayers for your coworkers. If, if I could just give you just real practical, you don't, you don't have to go into work and use Boaz's words here. I, I actually think that that would be problematic in the majority of workplaces for you to show up tomorrow and every person that you saw, you said, the Lord bless you, Joe. The Lord bless you, Sally. Nice tie, David. The Lord bless you. That could be off-putting to 99.9% of people, 99.99% of everybody that you come in contact with. But these words... They are an invitation for you to take the people that you work with to the throne of God consistently. How would your attitude in your workplace, and maybe how would even the climate of your workplace change if you use these words, the Lord bless and you fill in the blank each and every day as you pray for the person that you and the persons that you work alongside of. In all of the uh, places of employment, all the employers that are represented here, there are a host, a multitude of challenges. Much of that be personality, sometimes that's competency, and you're having to deal with that. Maybe you're an employer, maybe you're a supervisor, maybe you have a supervisor that you feel doesn't understand you, doesn't, doesn't value you. And what could change with each and every day this week on Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Thursday morning, Friday morning, that you began not with frustration, but you began on your knees saying, the Lord bless Joe. I don't know what Joe is going through, but God, you do. The Lord, would you be with Carolyn? Would you bless her? Would you watch over her? Hey, look, 
this is not a divine Ponzi scheme that if you, if you put in every morning that this is exponentially going to happen. I don't know what that's going to look like in your workplace, but I will assure you of this. There will be a change. If nothing else, the change would be in you. In your interaction with maybe a person who has been difficult. In your heartbeat. And you valuing what God has placed you. You're not there accidentally. Your influence in that moment is an influence that can reap eternal dividends and eternal harvest. You are not in your field accidentally. You're there by divine appointment. Notice that Boaz is in this field. He sees Ruth and Ruth catches his eye. Now, Jewish commentators, they would say in this moment, the reason that Ruth catches his eye is because of her beauty that had been passed down in the Jewish tradition from generation to generation. We don't know that. It certainly could be. It could be that Boaz just recognizes all of the people that are working in his field, and he had just never seen this person before. So he calls over his foreman. He says, who is that woman? And the foreman immediately says, oh, yeah, that's the Moabite woman who came back from Naomi, with Naomi, from Moab. You, you remember all that stuff? You remember when that happened, when they came back over about a decade? Notice the emphasis. Notice the disdain that all of the workers are going to have less Boaz for this woman. Don't just take my words. Look at verse 2, look at verse 6, look at verse 21. Notice every time that Ruth is mentioned, she is mentioned by her outsider status. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabite. Verse 6, we don't even get her name. She's just the young Moabite woman. Verse 21 Ruth the Moabite, she is an outsider, and her status as an immigrant, as one who is outside of the realm of the Israelites, is, is at the forefront of this story right here. And the foreman sees her nothing more than, than just a, a foreigner from the hated place of Moab. But Boaz, Boaz sees her in a different light. Notice what Boaz does when he approaches her. He shows her kindness. He says, don't leave my field. You've come to the right place. You need to stay in my field. He offers her protection. And you don't have to have much imagination to know this, this would not have been a safe place for this young, poor, destitute widow. And, and he tells the men that are going to be working with this young, destitute immigrant that she is under his protection. Notice what Ruth's response is, verse 10. Read it with me. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, said to Boaz, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land, and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. 
I love this passage here. I love the beauty of this passage. Boaz is saying, you will be rewarded by God because you're taking refuge under his wings, his wings of protection, his wings of care, his wings of concern. His wings are sheltering you in this moment. And do you notice how that is happening? It is happening because Boaz is the human instrument of the answer to Ruth's prayers. God is using Boaz in this time, this place, his position to be the human instrument of Ruth and Naomi's needs, desires, and prayers. They break for lunch. Verses 14 through 16 give us the story of how Ruth goes by herself. Well, of course she would. She's a Moabite. All the reapers, they gather together at lunch around the same table Poor Boaz sits down to eat lunch. He looks up and sees her by herself, and he does the unthinkable in this context. What would have been scandalous? Hey, come over here. Sit with us. He doesn't say, bring your lunch over here. He says, here's our water, it's your water. Here's our food, it's your food. What Boaz does here is he breaks down every wall of prejudice, every wall of divide, and he includes Ruth in his people. And there were murmurs and frustration. What is he doing? Boaz, again, is an example for us. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, there have been walls that have been broken down in your life and in my life. You were a foreigner to God's love because you were a sinner separated from him. And what did God do? He loved you so much that he sent his son, but we couldn't be in his presence. We were separated uh, because of our sin, but he breaks down the wall of separation through the blood of Jesus Christ. And he has brought those who are far, he's brought us near. And a part of that vertical love that we have received for God, ultimately we are called to be horizontal agents. What Boaz is doing here is sort of an Old Testament illustration of what we are called to do because you know that there's still tables of division. I mean, you can replace the names of Israelite and Moabites and understand that, we, that every culture, including our own culture, has challenges to, that, that ultimately push us away from people. We, we flock together, and oftentimes we push others that are different. It might be ethnically different. It might be racially different. It might be different from a socioeconomic level. But we, we divide. And what Boaz shows us is that the God-centered pursuit of unity is always something that God is calling us to. We see the destination of where we're headed. Do you understand that, church? You don't have to pray about where the story of God's narrative is going. We are going to a place, Revelation 7, where every tribe, every every nation, every tongue will worship him in beautiful diversity. 
And in all of that diversity, we're going to be unified around the throne of God. The diversity is unified, and that's where we're headed to. And so we pray as Christians, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that heavenly reality becomes something that we pray for, we work for, and we take intentional steps to show the beauty of God's unique diversity unified around him and the common pursuit of him. Weeks ago, we were in a staff meeting and Ben Hale, our missions pastor, was reading a passage, and it's a familiar passage, but it intersects with this passage in in just beautiful ways. It's John's high priestly prayer. Here we have Jesus in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 21. He's praying. You know who he's praying for? He's praying for us. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for the church. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, that they may all be one. That the diversity of the body of Christ, that can be segmented, all separate tables, divided, Not in conversation, sometimes even in competition, across socioeconomic lines, denominational lines, that around the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. And I I love, love this last part here. This is the motivation, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. One of the witnesses that we, the church, have is to be able to display the unity of the body across the diversity of this earth. And it is a a living, breathing advertisement for what is only possible through something that is beyond our interest, our desires, our natural inclination, that the beauty of the diversity of the body of Christ displayed here on earth is an advertising campaign for the power of the gospel who brings about unity through the shed blood of Jesus. Boaz says, hey, sit at our table. And Ruth eats her full. She eats and she eats, and, and there are no waiters there, but she gets all these to-go uh, plates boxed up for her because she's going to take it back to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and, and that's not enough. I mean, this widow's uh, foreigner's fortune has changed in just a few verses in Ruth chapter 2, but Boaz, after lunch, says, hey, I'm not, I'm not finished. Some of his workers, he says, you've gathered up those stalks right there. I want you to take them out of the bundles, and I want you to leave them for her. She's going to harvest them, and it's going to be more than anybody else would ever imagine. She gets an ephod, which is, in in translation, it it would have been a family to be able to eat on for weeks. And she's bringing that back. Some scholars say that she brings back 30 to 40 pounds, just dragging it back. She heads back to Naomi. Naomi looks at her and asks incredulously, uh, verse 19, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? 
Blessed be the man who took notice of you. You know, you know what that is saying here? Do you know what the translation of that is? Is honey, whose eye did you catch today? So Ruth just sort of matter-of-factly says, oh yeah, there's this field owner by the name of Boaz. And we don't see it in the text here, but Naomi might as well just, just jump out of her sandals. In verse 20, she says, may he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. This man, that man, is a close relative of ours. He is one of our redeemers. Now Ruth doesn't, Ruth is new to all of this. So we can pause the story right here because Ruth doesn't exactly know what all that means. But I want you to realize that that phrase, one of our redeemers, is the very crux of the story. How this conflict, how all of the tragedy of loss, how is it going to be redeemed? It is going to be redeemed on the hinge of this fact that Boaz is of the clan of Elimelech and he is going to be one of our redeemers. And we pause the story. Before the curtains close, our question still remains. Is your life and my life, is Ruth's life, is Naomi's life, is it a series of random coincidences, purposeless, senseless events that are strung together one after another, or is your life, the good, the bad, the ugly, the mundane, the indifferent, is it a part of a larger story that God is writing? And the answer is found in that phrase, it just so happened. It just so happened that God in his providence would institute a law the law of gleaning in Deuteronomy and Leviticus for the very purpose of being able to care for the immigrant, poor, and widow. Ruth is poor, check. Ruth is an immigrant, check. Ruth is a widow, check. Three out of three, it just so happened. It just so happened that she could have gone to any person's field, but she happened to go to the field of one who loved God and was generous just so happened. It just so happened that of all the fields that she could have gone to, that she went to a field of a, a God-fearing man who happened to be from the clan of Elimelech. It just so happened. And it just so happened that he showed up on that day and he had his eye caught by her. It just so happened. Is your life a random Series of events strung together? Or is your life a part of a greater providential plan that is often executed by the hidden hand of God? Notice that the providence of God is a mixture in Ruth chapter 2. It's a mixture of Boaz's integrity. It's a mixture of Ruth's initiative. It's a mixture of God's faithfulness. That the providence of God isn't let go and let God the providence of God isn't us saying, well, if he's going to do it, he's going to do it. It isn't this fatalistic determinism. There's none of the providence of God in Ruth chapter 2 where we, we say, you know, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen, so why am I going to even bother with it? None of that fatalism, none of the determinism. God's providence mysteriously includes your prayers and my prayers. 
God's providence mysteriously includes his initiative and your initiative. A part of the providence of God is you applying yourself and working hard. And part of the providence of God is you being faithful. And more importantly, God being faithful. Part of the providence of God is you showing up and knowing that God will never leave you nor forsake you. A part of the providence of God is you taking one step forward. A part of the providence of God is you following through. Part of the providence of God is how you treat people with integrity. A part of the providence of God is you sinning and people sinning against you. It is this beautiful mystery of your life and God's divine plan. And we can get hung up. Boy, it is easy to get hung up in sort of metaphysical speculation. How much of the providence of God is God's sovereignty and how much of it is human responsibility? Let's put some percentages behind it, but none of that in Ruth here. The providence of God is God's sovereignty and human responsibility mixed together to show His glory and the good of this poor, widowed, farmer. Do you believe that life is purely random? Or do you believe that every square inch of your life, God has a claim upon it? Every square inch of your life, God has a claim on it. Every square inch of your successes and every square inch of your failures, God has a claim on it to use it as raw material for his plan, his purposes, for your good and his glory. Now, your providence or the providence of God in your life isn't a straight line. It, it isn't a up, up, and away, one mountaintop to one mountaintop, victory to victory. No, the providence of God oftentimes in your life and my life, it is a long and windy road full of joys and also full of sorrows, full of great victories and oftentimes disappointments. But know that he's plotting your life in a mysterious way. Wendell Berry is a Kentucky farmer, author, 20 years ago, his most famous fictional account is a book called Jaber Crow. College graduate, moves back to a small Kentucky town to become a barber, and much of that fictional account is, is, is very reflecting upon God's hidden hand of providence. Listen to the words of this fictional character. Often, I have not known where I was going until I was already there. I've, had, I've had, had my share of desires and goals, but my life has come to me, or I've gone to it mainly by way of mistakes and surprises. Often I have received better than I deserved. Often my faintest hopes have rested on bad mistakes. I'm an ignorant pilgrim crossing a dark valley. And yet, and yet, for a long time, looking back, I've been able to, I've been unable to shake off the feeling that I have been led. Make of that what you will. 
the curtains close. The light goes dim. And there is Ruth. And there is Naomi. They have ate their fill. How the tide of events have changed so quickly in just one day. You can imagine them looking back, seeing how the long and windy road has led them to that moment. The light shining upon your life, and you get to look back. Coincidence or providence? Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you this very morning reminded that you call us to trust even when we cannot discern the dark valley that we are traveling through. Even when we can't understand how you are are taking the raw material of the circumstances of our life and using them for our good and your glory, we, we trust that You, Lord, are our shepherd. You desire to lead us by still waters. You desire to restore our soul. That even when we travel through the valley of the shadow of death, we do not have to fear evil for you, God, are with us. Your very rod and staff, they comfort us. We look back and we see your providence. Even when we see it through a veil, Even when we don't understand all of the whys and the wheres and the whats, we trust that you, God, have led us even now. Give us faith to believe even when we cannot discern how you've led us and how you desire to continue to lead us. Pray this in the name of Jesus.